Amen. As we continue this morning, uh, we're going to be finishing up a series that we started a few weeks ago in the book of Philippians that we've titled Finding Joy. And this morning, we are looking at the final chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, and the idea of finding joy in the Lord. Joy is one of those things, like love, that people are looking for in all the wrong places. When I say people, what I mean by that is that we are often looking for joy in all the wrong places. Some of us look to other people to fulfill our desires and to satisfy and meet all of our needs, even though we know how that inevitably ends. And some of us look to our work to fulfill us and to provide for us, but sometimes work is hard and doesn't pay off in the ways that we expected. Some of us look to the church for our joy because surely here we will receive what we need. But in the process of that, it's easy to turn the church into a product to be consumed instead of a community to be enjoyed and to which we belong. And when the church becomes a product that's designed around my preferences instead of a community of people pursuing the way of Jesus together, then joy is not what we find and we desperately need joy. We were made for joy. We were saved for joy. And so this morning, the question is, where do we find it? It's the question we've been asking over the last several weeks as we made our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And he points us toward several sources of joy that we've seen. We see that we could find joy in one another. We saw that we could find joy in suffering, even in humility and in faith. But in each of those cases, he was actually pointing us beyond those things to something else, actually to someone else, because we don't just automatically find joy in one another. Sometimes we find frustration and disappointment instead. We find joy in one another when we love one another as Christ has loved us, when we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, and we find joy in suffering, not in some sadistic way, but insofar as our suffering is an opportunity for others to see and to hear and to know the good news. And it's a moment where we experience the sufficiency of God's grace and His presence in our darkest moments. Similarly, we find joy and humility, not by devaluing ourselves, but by counting others as more significant, being shaped by the same attitude that drove Jesus to lay down his life for us. Philippians 2, 17 and 18, Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And we talked about finding joy and faith last week, faith that sees Christ not just as the means to the prize, but as the goal, as the prize of our faith. And in many ways, we see all of those sources of joy leading us to the conclusion of this letter where Paul invites us today to rejoice in the Lord who brings us peace and meets our needs. And so let's read together Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Paul writes, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of placing, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is a passage this morning that is full of verses that we like to pluck out and quote, sometimes out of context, beginning with this one. Rejoice, Paul says. He invites us in these verse, first verses, verses 2 through 9, to rejoice in the Lord who brings us peace. And as he transitions into this closing section of the letter, I think it's interesting that he takes what maybe seems like an aside or maybe it seems like this tangent in verses 2 and 3 where he's speaking directly to these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who apparently find themselves in some sort of conflict. And he urges them to find agreement in the Lord using there exactly the same word that he used in chapter 2, verse 5, where he said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here he is two full chapters later, Paul is continuing to apply the mindset of Jesus to specific scenarios in the life of the church. And here we are 2,000 years later trying to do the same. He's not just telling them to get along and agree with one another. He's not saying one of you is just going to have to back down and let her have her way. He's calling them to follow Jesus and he's urging others in the church to help them. Literally, it says to take hold of them and for them to agree in the Lord. And that means, first of all, that they agree with the Lord, that my individual rights are not an avenue for my selfish gain, but they're an opportunity for me to sacrificially serve others. When that's our mindset, that's our attitude, that's our goal, we can walk that path that was described in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Always, Paul says to rejoice in the Lord who brings us peace, peace with one another, peace with ourselves, and peace with God. We normally read and preach from the English Standard Version, as I am this morning. It's an excellent translation, but 
I would humbly submit to you that verse five here in this chapter is not their best work. It reads, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. It's not wrong. We should be people whose approach to differences and conflict is marked by a measure of reason. But for some of us, the word reasonable here can be misunderstood so that what we hear Paul saying is that our rightness, our logic, the order of our argument is what matters most. That as long as I'm right, that's all that matters. But that's not the point that Paul is making here. The NIV translation and most others do better here. They say, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. In fact, that's how the ESV translates that same word every other time. It's used in the New Testament, not as reasonable, but as gentle or peaceful, which is a big difference because it points us not to our desire to be proven right, but to the reality that Jesus is right and that he calls us to gentleness and peace, to walk in the same way that he did. That's the fruit that our lives should bear if we are following him. And it tells us that God's nearness is what should produce gentleness and peace toward others. It's what should quiet our anxious hearts and minds, which are both things that we need desperately. Because let's just talk for a minute honestly about the state of both the culture at large in which we live and the church culture in which we reside. People in these days are, are polarized and tensions are high. Divisions are drawn along cultural lines, socioeconomic lines, geographical lines, political, religious lines. The narrative of our culture and our country is one side versus the other side. It's us versus them with the us group getting smaller and smaller by the day. And with all of that conflict and all that instability has come this wave of stressed out, burnt out, angry people. If you have Facebook, you know that to be true. Or if you have cable and turn on the news, you know that to be true. Or if you just go out in public, you see that in the people that you encounter. People are divided and angry and anxious. And to that, we're quick to say they need Jesus. Of course, people are hurting. It's because they aren't close to the Lord. Before we go on, though, I want to be clear about what this passage is not saying this morning, what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that anxiety and mental health issues are a reason for you to feel shame. I'm not saying that seeking help from a professional for those things or taking medicine prescribed by a doctor somehow makes you weak. We haven't done a good enough job at times making that clear. The medical science is a good gift from a gracious God. Whether we're talking about mental health or advances in surgical technology or treatments for cancer and other diseases or vaccines, those are good gifts from God, and so we should make use of those with gratitude to God. We shouldn't let the accuser or other people use them to drive a wedge between us and God or us and the people of God. That's not what this passage is saying, but what is it telling us? It's warning us against one of the ways that we give anxiety a foothold in our lives, and that's by hiding or ignoring or avoiding the conflict in ourselves or with those around us. I sat with this passage and looked at it this week. The question that I found myself asking was, do we want the peace of God without the presence of God? We love this passage. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
That's good news. Yes, Lord, we want peace. Peace is what we want, especially when we think that peace means I get left alone to live how I want. Or maybe like Adam and Eve in the garden, we're ashamed of the ways in which our lives have not reflected the mind and heart of Jesus. And so we tend to hide in those moments. We keep our distance as if God is does not know us and he doesn't know what we need. But this passage tells us that it isn't in our hiding that we will ever find peace. It's in being known. He says, make your request known to God. Peace of God can't be separated from the God of peace. And throughout the Bible, what we see is that when God shows up, he is always working to reconcile and move things toward redemption. He's always pulling us toward a vision of what is true and excellent and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and worthy of praise. This is where he tells us in this passage to direct our minds. Those characteristics point us ultimately to who? To God. We don't get the peace of God without the presence of God. And here's what that means for us practically. When all our thoughts and all our thought processes are centered around and shaped by things that are the opposite of that, that are false, dishonorable, unjust, impure, hateful, and so on, we shouldn't be surprised to find our lives marked by these things and our hearts just as unsteady and unreliable as these things. And it plays itself out in our lives. Here's how it plays itself out for me. I'll just ask you a few questions as I apply this to my life. How do you begin your day? How do you pass time in the car or at home? Music, podcasts, TV, maybe some of those are even Christian content. But what does it do to us when we're constantly consuming content? How does that shape our minds and our hearts? How does it impact the way that we relate to God? Does he become just another product that we are consuming? Is he just another task for us to check off our list? Christian, when was the last time that you just sat in the stillness of God, in stillness with the Lord for more than 30 seconds? We're so busy and hurried and exhausted, right? and we say, Lord, I'm pushed to the limit. I need you to give me your peace. And then we just take off again like we were shot out of a cannon. I remember 18 months ago when the pandemic started, I heard it so many times, the Lord is trying to get our attention Our pace of life wasn't sustainable. This is something we noticed we're missing. We were missing those little moments with the people that we love. And then within a matter of months, we just wanted to get back to normal, seeming to forget that it wasn't working that well for us. We want peace without the practices that connect us with the God of peace. Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul calls us to think about the things of God and how God is at work in our world and then walk in those, to put those into practice. And what did the Philippians heard and seen in Paul? Just from this letter, we know they'd seen his genuine love and concern for those that served alongside him for the sake of the good news. We know they'd heard about his imprisonment for Christ and his endurance of suffering with the desire to honor Christ, whether it was in his life or in his death. They had seen Paul's desire to send Epaphroditus to them, to encourage them in their faith and in their ministry. They'd seen Paul's anxious concern for them, even in his own imprisonment. They'd heard Paul renounce every reason that he had for boasting and for self-righteousness so that he might, by faith and even through suffering, attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's message and his example 
went hand in hand and they were rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He didn't just see Jesus as the ticket to eternal life. He recognized that walking in the way of Jesus and following him with his life was the only true way to live. And he invites us to do the same, to rejoice in the Lord who brings us peace. Peace with one another, peace with ourselves, and peace with God who knows us fully and loves us unconditionally. This word reminds us that we don't access joy or peace apart from the presence of God. We think that for me to win, someone else has to lose. But Paul says, let your gentleness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. We're busy, we're anxious, and we're pushed to the brink. Paul says that instead of grumbling and complaining, we're to bring our requests before the Lord with thanksgiving. The consumerism of our culture too often shapes the way we think about God instead of the other way around. Paul says to think about who God is, to think about how he's at work in the world around you, and then to practice these things. Then the God of peace will be with you. Where God is present, he is bringing peace. He's reconciling all things to himself. And when we are reconciled to God, he's reconciling us to one another. And when I see those around me as reasons to praise God, those that he's placed in my life as reasons to give thanks to him, then I always have reason to rejoice. And so Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So we rejoice in the Lord who brings us peace and then who meets our needs. Notice what Paul does here as he moves into verse 10. We find out he's not just telling us, he's not telling the Philippians to do something that he wasn't willing to do or that he hadn't already done himself. He was inviting them to follow his example. He can tell them to rejoice in the Lord because he says, I rejoiced in the Lord. Sometimes what I like to do is I'm studying a passage like this as I'll print it out on a sheet of paper and just try to start like drawing connections and highlighting key words and it winds up being a complete and total mess, but one of the words that kept getting coming up again and again in this passage in verses 10 through 20 is the word need. Four times in 11 verses, even one where Paul says he isn't speaking of being need, but it's clear here that he's talking about what we need and how God meets our needs and how the Philippians had revived their concern for him and met his needs. He was so appreciative appreciative of what they had done for him. But he also wants them to know that ultimately he was depending on the Lord. And so he says, whether if I'm brought low, I'll be content. If I'm abounding, I'll be content. If I have plenty, I'm content. Hungry, content. Abundance, content. And then the verse we love to quote from this passage more than any other, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's not trying to lift heavier weights. He's not trying to get a promotion or whatever it is we use this verse to say that we can accomplish. And look, I'm not saying you can't accomplish those things and achieve your goals. God created you in his image and he has given you gifts and talents and abilities to use for his glory. You can do great things. That's just not necessarily what this verse is pointing us to. Paul has been calling the Philippians to a life of radical, self-sacrificing love. And this verse is about him saying that he can face whatever those sacrifices bring his way, whatever comes 
and walking in the way of Jesus and having the same attitude that Jesus has because he trusts that God will strengthen him moment by moment and day by day. This is Paul saying that in those moments when it feels like it's just you and Jesus, Jesus is enough. But he also acknowledges here that it's not really ever just you and Jesus. For Paul, he always had the Philippians. From the time he left Macedonia, he didn't have anyone else to count on, but they were there with him. They would send him support so that he could continue his ministry in Thessalonica. And even in this, verse 17, Paul claims his greatest desire wasn't that they would send him money or resources to meet his needs. For Paul, the best thing about that was that they were the kind of people who would give generously to others for the sake of the gospel. That's what Paul celebrates is their gift to him in his ministry as a sacrifice that's acceptable and pleasing to God. And he assures them that what was true for him will also be true for them in verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He Again, here, as he did in the previous section, Paul ties the practices of the Christian life to the promises and character of God. Here, it is with respect to generosity. And this is a passage that has been twisted many times by those who want to preach a prosperity gospel that says that God wants you to be rich, and if you're not rich, then you just need to have more faith been twisted in that way many times. Some will treat this as a contract between you and God by which you can control him as if if you're generous, then he has to be generous to you. It's not what Paul's saying. Paul doesn't say that God will supply their need according to their generosity. This isn't a business arrangement. It's a recognition of who God is and how God works that the generosity of the Philippians toward Paul was evidence that they were recipients of God's generosity in Christ and that their lives lived in the understanding of what it meant to have all their needs met through Jesus meant that they were able to be generous toward others. As A.W. Tozer once wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If we believe God's stingy and that his resources are limited, that he lacks the ability to supply our every need while at the same time supplying every need of everyone else around us, that's going to impact the way we view our own needs as well as those around us. That understanding makes all the difference in how we live. If that's who we believe God is, then we'll be stingy toward others. We'll hoard what we have. We'll covet what others have. We'll be driven by envy and greed instead of empathy and compassion. But what if God desires and what if God is able to supply every need of yours, not according to your riches, but according to his? How would that change the way you relate to your needs and the needs of those around you? If we believe that God is generous and kind and empathetic, then we'll reflect that toward others. We'll be generous. We'll recognize that just as God has worked through the generosity and compassion of others to meet our needs, that he desires to do the same through us. We'll look not just to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, knowing that God is enough, knowing that God has enough. If you want to know if you believe that, then I would say just look at how you relate to the needs of others. None of us have the same capacity to give that God has. 
and we don't all have the same capacity to give as others. But are we willing to be generous with what we have, with our time, our tools, our abilities, our resources, even our relationships? If we are, it's likely because we've learned to rejoice in the Lord who meets our needs. This morning I'll ask you, are you looking for joy in all the wrong places? Are you looking to the Lord who brings peace? Are your practices moving you closer to the God of peace or keeping him at a distance? Are you making your requests known to God or are you hiding from him and others? He says you can bring it before him with the assurance that he will not condemn, but that he will guard your heart and your mind with his peace. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy, are these the thoughts that fill our minds? Do you have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus? If you answer no to those questions this morning, and I would ask you, what's one thing you can change in your life this week to move in his direction? Do you need to turn off maybe the music or the podcast or on the way to work and spend that time in prayer? Do you need to start or end your day with prayer instead of with planning? What's something small, a small step you can take this week to think on the things of God and to practice the things that Paul points us toward in this passage and in this book? As we respond in a moment, I'd encourage you to make that commitment to the Lord. Practice these things, Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you. Are you looking to the Lord then who meets all our needs? These questions are not disconnected. At the heart of both of them is the same question. Who do you believe God is? Is he a ruthless taskmaster or a compassionate friend? Is he a stingy hoarder or is he a generous giver? We know what the scriptures say, but I'm asking you, who do you believe in your heart that God is? The answer to that question won't change who he is, but it can change who you are. Jesus told a story in Luke 15 about a man who had two sons. One kept all the rules while the other squandered his father's wealth and wild living. And as he made plans to return home in desperation, he prepared his speech before his father. Father, just treat me like one of your hired servants, he would say. But when he finally returned to his father, Jesus tells us in verse 20 of Luke 15, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. That's what God is like, ready to receive you with celebration as you place your faith in Jesus. He desires your joy always, and so he calls us to rejoice in the Lord who brings us peace and meets our needs. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who desires our our joy, 
and who brings us peace and meets our needs, God, who supplies our needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God, we pray that today we would that you would give us the grace to examine our, our hearts and our lives, Lord. That you would help us anywhere where we have a false view of who you are and how you view us and how you relate to us, God. That you would help us replace that with the vision that we see here in Philippians chapter 4. Of a God who desires to bring us peace and joy and to meet our needs, God. And we pray that you would help us then to walk in that reality and to reflect your heart toward others. And God, we pray that if someone is here who has never placed their their faith in you, Lord, and answered the call to, to follow Jesus and to follow him with their life and to follow him in baptism, Lord, and to receive your grace and your salvation and the eternal life that you promise, God. Pray that today that you would help them to step out in faith and to make that commitment or to begin a conversation about what it would look like for them to trust you, to know you, to follow you. A God who knows us fully and loves us unconditionally, God. We pray that we would know that peace and that we would walk in that joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.